Welcome to the Dr. Pete Goldman Show. I'm super psyched to have uh, Ahmed Best, and you know, I really love this guy. So I'm super, I'm, I'm extra psyched, not only for everyone's sake, because he's going to be a great guest. He's very interesting and talented, but I love this guy. I've known him for a long time. So Ahmed, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, we go so far back. Anything you ask me to do, I'll be there. I, well, that's same, by the way, same. So um, let me just start with this. Obviously, you know, you've become a very renowned actor, musician, martial artist, comedian, et cetera. Let's just start with like, like, kind of like when you were growing up. So if I'm not mistaken, you were born in New York. A lot of your years were in the Bronx and then some were in New Jersey. That's right. Um, what, what, I mean, do you, like, for example, do you remember, were you old enough in the Bronx to remember it? Do you remember the Bronx? Yeah, um, I moved to Jersey when I was like 13. So okay. most of my formative years was in the Bronx. And I grew up in the Soundview section of, of, of the South Bronx and not too far from where Boogie, Boogie Down Productions and, and Karis One and Cool Herc and all of the, like the founders of hip hop were all from that neighborhood. You know, J-Lo was from Castle Hill, which was like not too far away from Soundview as well. So, you know, 70s, 80s, South Bronx was really the birthplace of what we call hip hop culture now. Um, but I remember when it was like getting started and I was a kid when, when all of those guys would come to the neighborhood and throw parties at parks across the street from my building. So I, I, I really like watched hip hop become what it is over the years you know interesting. That's, my, that's really my formative years in the south bronx interesting because i i think i'm six years older than you if i'm not mistaken so i was in brooklyn of course born and raised in brooklyn and you know i also kind of observed you know whether it was coming out of queens but you know new york city's new york city yeah um from from like you know grandmaster flash and that era and then like run dmc was kind of a an they they shifted things a bit and then yeah. we can we can actually go into some of that other stuff later. But you mentioned Herc. It was it was cool? They call him Cool Herc. Am I right? Cool, cool Herc. Herc. Yeah. Okay. Cool so wasn't he kind of like an unsung founder? I mean, I mean, he's not unsung completely because we're talking about him. But wasn't he someone who was considered like one of the absolute greats? Who somehow in the history of hip hop, unless it's like you or me, your average person may not have heard of him. And let me just say this one thing before you answer it. Mm. I remember, this is kind of funny, but in, let's say, was it Rock the Bells when LL Cool J, mm -hmm. when LL Cool J said, I'm the baddest rapper in the history of rap itself. And somehow Kumo D just got so upset by that. Yeah. But what's interesting about him getting upset by that, he referenced Herc. Like Kumo D didn't say like, who's this guy to say that? He, uh, you know, in reference to me, meaning Kumo D, he said, I think that's, a, that's really disrespectful of Herc so if you could kind of expand on that whole thing, I'd find it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool Herc is considered the father of hip hop. Like it, it all started from Cool Herc and Cool Herc had a radio show, um, but he would also throw parties in the basement of his building in the Bronx. And that's where like, he was kind of really the guy who started hip hop. If it ever had a beginning, it would start at Cool Herc. And so Herc, Everything kind of branched out from Herc, right? Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, all of those cats that that came out of the Bronx at the time. And, you know, the Bronx is also considered the birthplace of hip hop, although New York City really is like the birthplace of hip hop. Um, but because Herc is from the Bronx and Herc, Herc is considered like the first 
Um, so they say that hip hop originated. What in- was the what was the kind of debate? I mean, it's probably I mean, it may be a silly debate because anyone can claim anything and they can be completely wrong. But what was the debate about like hip hop starting in Queensbridge? And yeah, then, there was. Well, a- how did that even get like started? What What is that? that that's an old school beef. Um between Queens and the Bronx. And it really was um, KRS-One who reclaimed the Bronx as the birthplace of hip hop. So there was um, uh, there was a, a rap tune called um, Queensbridge, right? The Bridge. And then, and, and Queensbridge in, in Queens, they were, te- they were saying that they started hip hop, right? And then KRS-One came out with a diss track called The Bridge Is Over. Great, and great, uh, great one, by the way. I love that. The bridge is over. Shut it down. Like there was no question about hip hop and where it came from after the bridge is over. Some right? interesting, uh, some interesting, like uh, part of that evolution. First of all, you, I'm not sure if you know this, but the whole term hip hop, like, well, not the term hip hop, but when they were saying hip hop in those original Grandmaster Flash, I don't know if you know this, but. Um, I'm not sure which one it was. It was one of the Furious Five. It was not Grandmaster Flash. I, it might have been uh, who Cowboy, whoever it was. They were like hanging out, I guess, in the Bronx at like a bar or a club. And one of their friends was like in the army. He was like, he went, he got sent to the army and he came back and he was just kind of, you know, just busting on him. And he was saying like hip hop, like, you know, how they march and stuff. Yeah. And that actually was kind of how it like worked its way into those first songs. Those, yeah, bebop has the same kind of origin, like bebop jazz. There was a a way that um, those those the, the the cool cats, the cool jazz cats, would walk, and they would call it bebopping, right? And then beboppers bebopped, and they listened to bebop music, right? Before bebop, it was it was um, kind of almost like ragtime and and you know very very new orleans type of jazz but bebop was like charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and miles davis and they they changed jazz music right and it went from louis armstrong which was very much like southern southeastern louisiana new orleans jazz to north and new york you know bebop jazz and hip-hop has the the same origins you know what was what was uh what was the run dmc song was it Sucker MC or it's like that where, where they said you can't rock a party with the hip and hop. They were kind of like, yeah. not dissing. They were kind of saying like, we're evolving. Like Grandmaster Flash had many of those kind of, and as Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash. And now we're kind of evolving to whatever run DMC was evolving to. Yeah. What, what do, you, do you, do you think that, uh, I mean, do, do you just look at that as a simple evolution, like Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, and then run DMC was a true evolution they changed or, or, it. or not? It really was Run DMC who made it more mainstream. And I, and I think a lot of it had to do with like Rick Rubin, you know, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons started Def Jam and Run DMC was like the stars of Def Jam records at the time. And they came out with this tune called Rock Box, which yeah, had I, like I rock that. guitars in it, right? And that was Rick Rubin. Like Rick Rubin brought the rock and roll and the hip hop sound together. And that's when it crossed over. Like everybody was, everybody was listening to Run DMC after that. Like Run DMC really changed the game when it came to hip hop. Hey, what do you, uh, this is the debate I've had with some people. Who do you think is better, Run or DMC? Run. 
I'm with you 100%. And I know some knowledgeable people, like knowledgeable people, like guys who have like written for like rap publications that disagree. I, I never understood that, but I'm with you, you know, all the way. DMC um, has some really great lyrics, right? And DMC is kind of like the foundation of Run DMC, but Run had it all. You know, Run not only had lyrics, but he also had the bravado. He had the braggadocia. He had the, the showmanship. Um, that track, Run's House, just that, that was, it was just one. How about Beats, Beats to the Rhyme is, is another classic. Beats to the Rhyme. Um, it's like that. Sucker MCs. I mean, even Daryl and Joe for an old Darryl, school one. Word. I mean, Run was really the cat who, who, my Adidas put adidas on the map right saved the sneaker company adidas my adidas mm -hmm. so i mean I, for, so for me out of run dmc run was really the cat but as far as like hip-hop in new york goes the guy who really changed it all for new yorkers was rakim, rakim. i've always said whenever someone says pete who's the best hip-hop artist ever i say look it's everyone has their opinion and my opinion it is rakim i think he's the best rapper ever to me rakim, rakim changed hip-hop I mean, everybody was rapping the same way, and then Rakim just changed everything. He, it's interesting. His, yeah, sorry, good. His style, his rhyme scheme, his flow—it just changed hip hop. It's everybody interesting that back then the the DJ often had had top billing in, yeah. in front of the MC. So when it was known as Eric B and Rakim, it wasn't so odd actually. That was not no. so odd. Now, I'm not an expert on Eric B, and I think he's great, but I heard that, and I could be completely wrong, but I heard this from a reliable source, that he was just like a drug dealer who just like had connections, and he didn't even know what he was doing, and someone else was like doing the beats. I have no idea if that's true. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. but I don't know if that's true either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was always Eric B and Rakim. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, and and I I, I like that, so I'll keep yeah. it there. And being yeah. from the Bronx, you know, it's always like Eric B and Rakim. Um, you know, uh, who I think we might've discussed this many years ago. I don't remember, but you know, who I think was a very underrated cause let, the late eighties hip hop was like a, it was a real beautiful time with when I think public enemy at their peak. I know public enemies hung around. I think they got a little worse in my opinion, but I feel like the late eighties public enemy was just like spectacular is not a strong enough word. We already said KRS one amazing, amazing, amazing rock him run DMC. I thought EPMD was pretty underrated. I think so. I mean, I was a huge EPMD fan. Me too. I saw a lot. I mean, yeah, it was great. I loved EPMD. They were kind of on the. I think what happened was, I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs. I think they kind of broke up, and then I guess they just needed the money, so they just like got they got back together to yeah. kind of. But they did a show. I didn't care what was going on with them. I they did a show <laughs> in in like like 14th Street. I was in the, I was right there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, Eric that was and Parrish making dollars. EPMD. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, I thought they were really consistent because I thought their first album was incredible. They came yeah. out of the gate with a bang. Um, and I thought their second album was great. I think it had um, "So What You Saying" on it. That was mistaken. the track. So what you saying was the yeah. record that yeah they exploded. Amazing. And then I think that they were always good. They were just consistent. And I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure why they didn't reach the level of fame of some of the other ones but yeah they never went like pop super pop it was they they were very high in like the hip-hop circles right everybody loved epmd if you were into hip-hop but they never really crossed over and to be honest not a lot of rap groups crossed over into pop music like run dmc was an anomaly especially at that time you know hip-hop was just really on black radio 
it didn't really get to pop radio until like De La Soul with me, myself, and I. And then they crossed over. And then the real big hip hop crossover was MC Hammer. You know, right. and MC Hammer from Oakland, he did, you know, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. And yeah. that was like the, he was the biggest star. No, it's in interesting. I, I, and this is not an East Coast, West Coast thing, because I don't care about that, because even though I'm from the East Coast. Um, I never was a huge fan of his. Nothing personal. I mean, I yeah. nothing against him at all. I I respected him. I was rooting for him, you know, to be successful. But I never particularly liked listening to him. I didn't love it. Yeah, him. he wasn't for me. And, you know, New Yorkers, we're assholes when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we're, pizza. Totally. It's like nobody has better pizza than New York City. Like my, friend, York my, friend, my, friend, my friend from Brooklyn is hilarious. He was talking. Yeah, he's talking to me the other day. He's hilarious. He's like, Pete, you know, they're talking about Detroit pizza. And he was talking about the different kind of pizzas. He's like, Pete, you know, Detroit pizza, Chicago pizza, Philly pizza. He goes, New York pizza, also known as pizza. So <laughs> back me up. But um, Definitely. yeah, but but yeah. So um, but but as far as uh, that era, um, yeah, there was MC Hammer, of course. You know who I thought was... No one, no one's even gonna know what we're talking about. I'm just telling you. You know who is great, totally unknown, but you'll know who he is. He was from Philadelphia. Steady B. Yeah, I love Steady B. Steady B was like phenomenal. I love that guy. I Steady don't know whatever B. happened yeah. to him. But, I love that dude, Steady yeah. B. There's yeah. a whole set of Philly rappers that that um were extraordinary. Yeah, and never really got they due. And Steady B was one of them. Um, in the '90s, there was this cat named Philadelphia Freeway who was yeah. He was with Jay Z and and Rock Nation or Rockefeller Records at the time, and the Rock. And I remember seeing him in like freestyle battles. He would come up from Philly to New York and do like freestyle battles and destroy everybody. Incredible, incredible. And there's this one legendary session about him battling like. Buster Rhymes and like destroying Buster Rhymes. Yeah. I mean, this is rumor. Like I, I heard this yeah. happened and like he rolled yeah. up to where Buster was recording and he just yeah. destroyed Buster. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a really great era in New York. Um, even I would say from 83 and on was when you could put on either WBLS, which is 107.5, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Kiss FM, Kiss uh, FM. 90.7. Or I guess it was called KTU 92.3. And they had like the Mr. Magic Rap Attack and Red Alert. Like you were just like treated. You didn't even have to go to the record store. You were just like treated to legendary DJs and doing hip hop, especially Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah. I, so I'm sure I'm sure everyone had their favorite, but that was a, amazing. Yeah, there time. was there was this really beautiful time of like curation. You know, where DJs just didn't play records. They like curated nights and they would find, you know, they were really the tastemakers of, of hip hop. They would find these really obscure artists and records. And if it caught their ear, they play them on, on the radio and then they would explode. And um, I think we're missing that a little bit now in, in the world of, of Spotify and playlists and iTunes and stuff like that. We don't really have these curators anymore. And, and we don't really have curators that we can trust. Like we trusted Red Alert. We trusted, you know, all, all of those Mr. Cats, Magic. Capri. Yeah. We trusted Mr. Magic. Like when they played a record, we were just like, oh, maybe we should go check that out. Maybe we should listen to it, right? And if they repeated a record, because those DJ nights, they didn't repeat records. You know, each night was a new set. So when they repeated records and they were just like, this is 
this guy, go get this guy. We all went and got him. And I think that's something that um, was a very, was very special for that time in, in all of the arts, you know, you had these really, you know, taste making ears that curated nights and really moved culture. Well, if it wasn't for those DJs, we wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you a question, but I want to kind of just, just before we kind of get a little bit off the subject, I want to say that I think Sucker MCs, yeah. Follow the Leader by Rakim, Rakim and Rock the Bells. Like, I think they're as good as like any, I mean, they're, they're, the technology wasn't the same and they're a little, a little outdated, but like, I think they're as, as good as any three we can pick. So I just want to, but what I wanted to say was, now this is super subtle stuff. And I just thought of this and I may be way off, but you have a good ear for this. So it almost, and I'm not an expert on like conspiracy theories and what's happening in like, you know, the music industry and what they're doing to the artists. Like, I don't know about all that. I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar enough with that world, but it almost seems like when you hear an artist now, it's like, they feel like they're subtly, subtly like under the gun. Like someone's like, say this, don't say this, yeah. do this, sing like this here's your theme. And they're just like trying to get paid. So they do what they got to do. I feel like the era we're talking about, I mean, maybe it was going on on some level. I don't know, but it feel, it felt like when run DMC was saying what they were saying, it felt like they were beholden to no one except like what they were thinking about. Yeah. There was this, there was this thing about that time where the more obscure it was, the more in the know you were. And so everybody wanted to find that diamond in the rough. Everybody wanted to find that obscure group and say, and this, I think this is a very uniquely like New York thing. We wanted to be the first to hear it. Like we wanted to know before everybody else in the world knew, and then everybody else would catch up to New York. So that was a really, that was like a point of pride for us. Like if you saw, like I saw Biggie Smalls and Tupac at the Roxy live together in, I think it was like 92, 93. And I remember being in that room and they opened for a Tribe Called Quest and Leaders in the New School. Biggie, Smalls, and Tupac Shakur opened for a Tribe Called Quest and Leaders in the New School. And I remember seeing Biggie Smalls and going, that guy's special. That guy's going to do something and then he became you know biggie smalls but it was a very new york thing to be like oh i was in the room when those guys were on stage and now that they're super huge i think that's lost now you yeah. know what i'm saying like i think we're so quick to brand and we're so quick to mass market that that cool factor of oh man little club not a lot of people these two guys they're gonna be something let's keep an eye on yeah. You know, it's funny as far, like I said, I was never, me and my friends never cared about like the East coast, West coast thing. It didn't even occur to us, but I will tell you a funny story. I think it was the summer of like 89. I might be off. I don't know. I was with my friends in Brooklyn and one of my friends, big brothers, who I kind of knew because we kind of all went to school together. He was just two years ahead of me. And we were even on, like, I think I, I played in the varsity basketball team, even when I was like in 10th grade. So I think I was like, uh, you know, I kind of knew him from basketball, but he was like the big brother of my friend. And I remember he brought back to the house, I guess CDs were new then. It was like, it was, yeah. it was new to have a CD, you know, then yeah, and yeah. he had a CD of NWA and we, and he was like, these guys are from the West coast. And like, it didn't really, we didn't really, it didn't like, we couldn't process it. Like when he said it, we were like, we didn't think anything. We weren't like, oh, West coast, they didn't know anything. 
And we didn't even think, like, oh, West Coast, do they rap there? Like, we were just like, oh, like, it was kind of like, yeah. okay. And he yeah. put it on, and we were just like mesmerized. We were like, these guys are incredible. <laughs> like, so we never got a chance to like say anything bad about it. Like, it was too late. Like, they had us hooked. So yeah. we we're just like, where to, oh, like, let me, where, let me pick one up. So, yeah, when NWA dropped, I remember like, I, fir- I think I saw, 100 Miles and Running, I saw the video before I heard the record, right? And I saw the video on MTV back when MTV played videos. And, you know, I've never been to the West Coast, so I didn't really fathom, like, what was going on there. I thought the West Coast was like palm trees and beach and it's hot all the time and sunny and everybody's surfing. I didn't know about, like, Compton and South Central and all the stuff that I just didn't know, like the Crips and the Bloods and the gang stuff. I didn't know. Right. And then 100 Miles of Running came out and NWA is in like, they're in like down jackets and sweatshirts and black baseball caps. And they're just booking from the cops. And I remember going, what the hell is happening in LA? Like, hey, I thought it was hot. Why are they wearing these like jackets and sweatshirts and why are they dressed in all black and why are they running so fast? You know what I'm saying? Like what's happening? Because, you know, in New York City, it's it snows and it's cold and we're on top of each other. So when you're in the city, you kind of understand why everybody's upset. You know, L.A., everybody has a house and a yard. And we were just like, I don't understand why they're so angry. It's It doesn't snow. It's not like below zero. And they don't live in buildings like ants in an ant farm. And that's when I first started understanding what, you know, like the mental oppression of Los Angeles, especially in that, in that area in Los Angeles. Well, it's interesting because I actually... I didn't think of it as deeply as you did because, you know, what you whatever you just said, you, your, your mind put a few things together. But with that said, I was like, oh, L.A. is not just like palm trees and surfing. So I, yeah. I was with you completely on the first part. I just didn't consider the other parts. But, you know, it's interesting when you when you were talking, you reminded me of something which kind of relates to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. You talked about like kind of like. You know, New York in the 80s and not, well, in the 80s, New York was like in the 70s and 80s. It was like a combination of like awesomeness and just like desperation and like, and just a lot of, you know, not great things. But I thought, and we kind of brushed over this before, I'm not sure about how we did, but I thought, forgetting about like how good they were, where they fit in, I thought like the lyrics to the message and New York, New York were like a, like, if you lived in New York like I did, you understood every intricacy of every lyric, everything. I mean, down yeah. to the last. It was all about freaking, lyrics. Like, and and it was such a genius. Like, I mean, these, yeah. these guys probably have like Mensa IQs. It was, or whoever, like, it was such a genius microcosm. That's probably not the perfect word, but something like that. Or representation of all these tons of intricacies. Even Curtis Blow yeah, had a couple of his songs that kind of like caught that real, real New York stuff. And it's kind of funny because like, if you li- like, listen, like the Beastie Boys got popular and mm-hmm. I'm sure people all over the world, probably in all, you know, most of the continents are singing along to the Beastie Boys songs because they they bought, you know, 
Man, no one knows what that, I mean, listen, th- these guys are from my neighborhood. I know they're talking about these intricacies of like a freaking sandwich shop on my corner. Yeah. Like, I know what that is because, you know, whatever. Like, yeah. no one knows. So it's just funny how, I mean, that's very, you know, specific. But I thought, I thought, I thought the message in New York, New York were just a perfect representation of what was going on then. Yeah, I agree. And it really was about lyrical content on, on, in New York City. And that's what made you an MC. And that's what got you respect as an MC. If you were, if your lyrics were on point, you were dope. And everybody gave you, you know, the props that you deserved. That's why, you know, Karis One was where he was in the pantheon of, of lyricists, because his lyrics were just, not only were his lyrics poignant and intelligent, but they were a lesson. You know what I'm saying? Like he, you know, he was like a teacher, and he would say things the way he would say things that it would be entertaining and educational at the same time. So it was really about like how that lyrical content flowed in your songs. You know what I love about KRS-One, among other things? Um, you know how like some rappers and hip hop artists are very braggadocious, but when they say what they say, it's not that it's not true. It's just like you don't feel it physically because it's just like, oh, that's a clever lyric, yeah. but it's not like really true. Like, but when KRS one had that lyric about his competition, they they get the album, take it home with and start sweating. Like you're yeah. like, they are actually doing that. Like, yes. like it's not just like I'm the greatest. I'm the he's like, no, they get the album, they take it home and start sweating. They are. There are beads of sweat on their head. And I'm like, yeah. not everyone can pull that off. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Chris was one of them cats who would lay a record down and everybody would be like, we got to we got to get it. We got to hear what he's going to say and would be like, we got to beat it, you know, and I think, you know, going back to the bridges over when KRS-One heard the Queensbridge record, right? It was like Queensbridge bridges over came out. And then Queensbridge did Queensbridge, Queens, Queensbridge, and then KRS did South Bronx, South, South Bronx. That was great. And that's, that was that rivalry, you know what I'm saying? That, and it was like, we have to up each other lyrically, you know, it, it, it rarely turned to violence, you know, it did sometimes in New York, you know what I'm saying? Like Scott LaRock from, from KRS-One's crew. Got killed, right, got killed, yeah. He was shot, you know, Um, but it didn't often turned to violence you know we left all of the all of the battle rap in the raps you know we left all of the conflict uh breakdancing you know what i'm saying so it 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 wasn't we didn't have a it wasn't a violent art form hip-hop not until like much much later right. what, what did you what did you think of uh one person we didn't mention who's a legend i don't know how he left him out but where do you what are your thoughts on big daddy kane I love Big Daddy Kane. Um, he, he was one of those guys that uh, was so smooth. You know, his flow is just so smooth and so even. And he didn't get hype. He wasn't like, he wasn't like a big in your face kind of guy. But the way he delivered with such authority and and so smooth really put him at, at the top. And then he was kind of the first guy who had like dancers. You know what I'm saying? Like, he had, like, scoop and scrap behind him. So he didn't have to do too much. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was one of the first, like, 
hip hop artists who were just like, I got these two dancers behind me. What I what I think, well, first of all, I want to say that I I if I'm not mistaken, uh Big Daddy Kane lived like walking distance from my house. I mean, oh it, word. Yeah, I live right in the neighborhood. Um, and also with Big Daddy Kane, I feel like some rappers, even the great ones, even the greats, sometimes when they get the like the third verse, they're kind of running out of stuff to say. It's like the third verse is not always. But his his were just like great from like the beginning to the end. Like we have like yeah. ten seconds left in the in the song, and it was like another amazing verse coming out. So. Yeah, he was pretty even. He didn't really go up and down. Yeah. And he was kind of like as oh. much as I love Run Run DMC, and I do. I love Run DMC, but they they were they were guilty of that sometimes. Like their third verse, or it would just just a little yeah. dip, dipped a little bit sometimes. Yeah, not a, yeah not they a, knew the song. They knew when the song was over. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so. By the way, just before we get off hip hop, um, who were the Queens rappers who were in contention, so at least in their own mind, with KRS-One and the Bronx guys? Who who were the yeah, ones who yeah, claimed they um, founded hip hop? I forgot. I forgot who that was. Yeah, the Queensbridge Cats. Um, what were their names? Oh man, what were their names? Queensbridge. Queens, Queensbridge. It was like MC Shan. I was gonna say, see, I, I was gonna say MC Shan. He's in my head, but then I thought maybe he was a Bronx guy. That's why I got. I knew oh, he was. I knew he was in that conversation. It was MC Shan, and yeah, yeah, all yeah, them yeah. Cats. yeah. Queensbridge. Um, who, who who wrote that song? Queensbridge. Uh, I think they might have had a female rapper in their crew. I could be wrong about that. What is the name? Who wrote that song, Queensbridge? Well, we can we can come back to it. Because out of the out of the Queensbridge cats, the, the person who's like the most popular out of Queensbridge is Nas. Right, but that's and, of course a later era, and that's nineties. Right, right. You know, okay. but he kind of he kind of holds up the the Queensbridge mantle. Yeah. So you mentioned jazz before and you mentioned uh, you, you mentioned it earlier and a couple of facts about it. So when it comes to like 40s jazz, like Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and stuff, did that segue into the jazz? That was the 40s. But did that segue into the jazz of like the 50s or was that just kind of its own little little? Yeah, well, branch? in in economically yes right so all of those guys those were like the big band jazz era and um mm -hmm. big band jazz was huge in like the 20s to like the 40s right but big band jazz kind of fell off because of world war ii right world war ii um of course put everyone in the world in this really heavy like economic strain and you couldn't really afford all of those people to do a big band jazz show, right? And and to record big band jazz. There was like a lot of people in big band jazz. And so jazz really turned into more of a smaller ensemble kind of thing. That's when you had the trios and the quartets and the and the and the septets, right? Big band jazz is like 40 people. And when you have smaller groups the music has to change because you don't have like a sax section and a trumpet section you know what i'm saying like you have to have you have a trumpet a saxophone and everybody's playing you know what what they call the head the top of the tune together right and then what continues it are like the solos 
right? And big band jazz, you'd have maybe like one or two solos in the entire song, right? Because there would be about the song and you had like big band jazz arrangers and you had, you know, songwriters and orchestrators and why it was just this huge production. Bebop jazz didn't have that, you know, bebop jazz was small ensembles. You would have like a page of music and then the rest would be improvisation, it would be solos. So economically, big band jazz turned into smaller ensembles because after World War II, everybody couldn't afford to pay people. Got it. Now, when you were a kid and you obviously had these, first of all, you were athletic, you were doing martial arts, you were a good musician. I don't know if you were like in the school play or anything, but you were. So so in your own head, and listen, it's not like you have to be a little little kid planning out your career, but just out of curiosity, in your head, were you like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do martial arts. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be, or did you, you think like, I just, I like these things, but I want to do so-and-so. Yeah, you know, it. I didn't have a plan. Martial arts came about because of my father. My father was a karateka, and he studied karate in Okinawa. He was stationed in Okinawa and in the Philippines during the whole Vietnam era. And, you know, actually, like, martial arts goes back to my grandfather, who was in World War II. Your dad's dad. My father's father. Got Both it. my grandfathers were in World War II. Got it. But my father's father, who was a a Harlem Hellfighter, right, which is like legendary World War II infantry, you know, black, all black infantry from Harlem, New York, you know, uh, even though my, my father's father immigrated here from the Caribbean, he immediately signed up for the army and went into World War II to serve, right? And while he was in, during World War II, they had like judo classes. And so he studied judo during World War II. And um, I didn't know this until a lot later in my life. My father was just like, no, no, karate, you know, martial arts goes way back, you know, to my father who studied judo in World War II. And then um, my father was, I just had this conversation with my father about martial arts because, sorry about that, that's my fault. No problem, no problem. Yeah. Um, my father, um, I asked my father, like, why he wanted to study martial arts. And he was just like, well, it was because of Bruce Lee. Like, Bruce Lee, they would show those Bruce Lee movies on Canal Street, right, in Chinatown. And all of his friends would go to Canal Street and watch these Bruce Lee movies. And they were taken by these Bruce Lee movies because Bruce Lee was a small Chinese guy. He was beating up all of these people and he was the star of the movie. And at that time, you didn't have any non-white stars of movies, right? Really. Black exploitation came like 10 years later, right? But it was really like the Bruce Lee thing. So when my father went into the service during the whole Vietnam thing, he was just like, I want to learn how to do that. Like I want to learn how to do martial arts. And so he studied uh, a system in Okinawa called Doshinkai, which... I don't even think you can find anymore, even in Okinawa. But there was this very strong karate community, especially in the black community. I'm actually quite familiar. I'm actually, I'm actually quite familiar with like the 1960s and 70s, like martial art karate black community. I'm not even talking about like Moses Powell and those guys. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Not even, I'm not even talking about those guys, which are worth talking about. You know, you know, that's certainly part of it, but I'm quite familiar with that. It was a major force and there's a lot of like Van Cleef, 
Yes, and, Ron Van Cleef. Um, and, and and many other uh, superstars of that era. So I'm, I'm yeah. quite familiar with it. It was really huge. You know, martial arts in the Black community was huge in the 70s and 80s. And so when my father came back to the States from Vietnam, um, he continued and he did a martial art. He did a karate style called Gojiru, which is also yep. another Okinawan yep. style. That's actually what Kyokushin came out of. Yes, Kyokushin came out of Gojiru. And um, that's what I studied. And my father was my first teacher, right? Which was tough. <laughs> did, he have, did he have his own dojo that you were a member of? Or you mean he just was teaching you? He was teaching me privately at the at the apartment in the Bronx, but he also belonged to a a, a dojo where he was um, a senpai. He wasn't the sensei. Got it. So you know he belonged to this dojo that was in Midtown Manhattan, and I think the dojo was called like LSKA or something mm -hmm. like that. But it was a Gojuru dojo, mm -hmm. and I remember going there as a kid. Like I would go there when I was like four or five years old, and watch karate class. And I was always just in love with it. Like I you know what's funny about that? I just want to interject one thing. When I was about, I must have been about seven. My neighborhood was rough. And my dad took me to, I think it was judo, or it might have been karate, I don't know. In not quite Bed-Stuy, but it was kind of like, I guess Fort Greene would be the actual, mm -hmm. if you want to make it official, but. And I remember I, you know, they told us to sit down and I was like seven and I watched the class and I was just like terrified of everything. Like I was terrified. I, I, there's nothing, there was nothing in there that was appealing to me. Like right, right, I didn't right. want to go and do what they were doing, which was like throwing each other and being each other up. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like anything about that day. And I just said, no, no, it's not. And little did I know that martial arts would have, would ultimately become a huge part of my life. Yeah. But it's just kind of funny when you mentioned you were four. I mean, I guess because your dad was there, but I, uh, when I was even older, like seven, I was like, this is not for me. It's too rough for me. And then eventually, I think when I was 11, there was a still a tough dude. He was actually a guy who was uh, in the Korean, actually, maybe he was, maybe he's in Vietnam. I'm not sure, but he's kind of similar, like to your dad, the way you told the story. And he had a dojo like walking distance from my house. And then I kind of got into it. Yeah, I didn't really like get into it until I was like 10, nine or 10. Mm -hmm. You know, I would do it and I would go and I had like a little gi and stuff, but I didn't really, I didn't really go, you know what? I kind of like this until I was like 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. Um, but with my father, karate was just so much a part of his life that everything was karate. Like karate never stopped. Um, it was like making my bed was karate, like eating was karate, like everything. Was what, what was your dad's occupation at the time besides doing the karate, of course? Yeah, my father is a, is a, or he just, he retired a few years ago, but um, he's a, a cinematographer by training. Um, and he was a cameraman for um, the PBS station in New York City. I, I watched plenty of it when I was a kid, yeah. Channel 13. Channel 13. He was like, he was trained in um, channel at Channel 13. There was this um, training uh, for camera people. Um, and he went, he went to City College when he got out of the service on the GI Bill. And he studied cinematography and he really wanted to be a cinematographer. But, you know, he had three kids. So he was like, I got to get a, I don't want to stop 
doing this, but I got to get something that is kind of day to day. And so he went to this WNET PBS Channel 13 training program and they trained him to do camera for TV. And then um, in like the, 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 like 75, 76, they had the Harlem riots, right? And not a lot of people talk about the Harlem riots. Yes, yeah, not, it's not a big part. It's not, not something big, that historically gets referred to or recounted right. or have a documentary on it. It's very yeah. unknown. It's very unknown. They talk about the Watts riots. All hearing, the time, all the time, yeah. You know, you hear a lot about the Watts riots in, in, on the West Coast, but the Harlem riots were just as volatile as the Watts mm -hmm. riots, right? And so the Harlem riots went on and they started burning down the buildings in Harlem. And they wanted to get news people um, in to get the story. And all the gang leaders in Harlem were just like, we're not letting any news people in unless they're black. And there weren't any black news people, right? There weren't any black broadcasters. There weren't any black newscasters, anchormen, or camera people. What and year was this? This had to be about 75 or something. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's right? correct. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and so my father was in the PBS training program, and he was like the only black camera guy, right? And so ABC called PBS and was like, do you have any black camera guys? And they were like, yeah. And it was my father. And they were like, get him here now. And my father got a job at ABC and they were just like, go to the Harlem riots. And the other person that they hired was this broadcaster named John Johnson, who was like, if you're from New York City and you watch ABC, John Johnson is a staple. He was like the black anchor man. I remember. Right. So John Johnson and my father both got their start because of the Harlem riots. And that's when my father started working for ABC. And then he worked for ABC until he retired. Like, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned uh, that dojo. And I remember when I finally joined the dojo um, and the way you're describing like your dad and his dojo at the time, it sounds pretty similar to the dojo I was at. It was not a Kyokushin one, but just kind of similar. And I remember, I think I was like 11. So it was like 1978. Yeah. And I remember just the way things were in Brooklyn, like literally, and he was a good teacher, but he would say like, if someone tries to abduct you, cause we're kids, yeah. he's like, he would show us like when they pick you up, like bite their ear as hard as you can. Like, that's the kind of stuff we were learning. Yeah, It was like, yeah. it was like, we were like in Brooklyn in 1978. It was like yeah. dangerous. And we were kids, it was dangerous. And he was like teaching us like, I mean, of course we, you know, we're punching and kicking and all the karate stuff, but it was like, this is treacherous stuff because- that's what you need. That's what he was teaching us. Yeah. I remember when um, the dojo closed down in Midtown, right? And so the 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 um, the sensei from my father's dojo was from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Which for which for those who don't know, let me just let me just give a yeah. public service announcement. That was, I mean, you know, I don't know, like statistically, what was going on in the South Bronx or whatever. But East New York and Brownsville, I mean, if you could just survive in there, you were just oh. by default incredibly tough. Those yes. neighborhoods were were just, in, like, as my friend once said, he's like, I wouldn't even fly over there. So, like, that's, you know, that's. Brownsville, like, every, people in Brooklyn, from Brooklyn, wouldn't go to Brownsville. Yeah, exactly. I would you drive know? through it on the way to JFK. If you took it. On the way to JFK. On the, the way to JFK, that's about that's it. Right. That's it. That's the only time you go to Brownsville. Yeah. So my father's 
Meanwhile, my grandfather, my grandfather lived there, you know, in like, it was a little, my father like, lived there I, in like, you know, like a 19, let me figure this out, four, like in 1915 or something, he lived yeah. there, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Brownsville really turned into like this place where you don't want to be caught in, in the daytime, let alone at night. But Sensei Lloyd and um, my father's sensei, moved the school to Brownsville. And it was in the basement of these projects in Brownsville. And I remember, it took like two hours to get there from the Bronx, right? But we would drive there every Saturday. And, you know, we would, my father would teach these kids in the projects in Brownsville. And I would be in that class. So imagine like 10-year-old me karate gi i was like a yellow belt or something like that brownsville brooklyn and i and my father was the toughest teacher there he was the toughest right every it was like he was one of those teach everybody was just like oh man he's here like you know they would get like so pissed and i'm the son so i had to be like super tough you know just because i'm representing my father and my father was like a brown belt he wasn't even a black belt yet. He was like a brown belt. And he was like the worst. And if I just made a, a slight mistake, push 100 push-ups on the knuckles, you know what I'm saying? Like he would like stand on our, our bellies when we would do sit-ups. Like it was hardcore like karate training, you know what I'm saying? In Brownsville, Brooklyn on top of that. So he would teach in Brownsville and... All, all of these like hood guys would like stand in the door and watch us do karate. You know what I'm saying? In the basement in Brownsville. And then we would run. Just like, just like 1983, like 1983. 80, 82, 83. Well, right? Brownsville was Brownsville was, not was ridiculously treacherous then. I it know was, it well. It was the worst, right? During our Saturday classes, my father would take everybody outside and we'd jog barefoot Brooklyn. That's how it was. Brownsville, Brooklyn. Yeah. We'd jog barefoot around the neighborhood in Brownsville. And I don't know if this was like him signaling to everybody, like we're here and don't mess with us. Or if he really wanted us to like take a look at, at the environment in which we're training it. Right. But we were, we were known in Brownsville as like the karate people, right? And so every time we'd show up in Brownsville, they'd be like, oh, those are the karate guys, right? And we'd do karate in this basement. But I have to say, as as tough as it was and as hardcore as my father was, I loved it. Like, I loved going to karate class. I loved training in, in Brownsville and, and training with those guys. And it was tough, but it was really formative. You know, actually, there's a there's a real subtle thing that only, well, I'm sure different people in different parts of the world understand it in their own way, based on maybe they experienced their own thing. But New York in 1982, 83, well, we'll say not, New York in like, we'll say 1982, 83, 84, whatever, because it sounds like that's when you were there. Yeah, it was like this very interesting combination of it was incredibly dangerous, but there was like an amazingness and this great feeling to it at the same time. And 
you were tapped into that because you were like, you know, your blood was pumping. You were doing this amazing thing. It was this treacherous area, but those guys who were treacherous were kind of respecting you. So kind of yeah. like leaving you guys alone. I mean, there's so many little elements coming together at once to make that like an incredibly special time. And I can picture it because I know that era. I know that time I was doing martial arts at that, you know, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing about that class, every kid free, nobody paid. Yeah. You know, they all volunteered their time and all the kids who signed up for karate, nobody paid for it. Everybody was just there because they loved it. And, you know, the, the, the senseis and the senpais, they would give everybody geese. You didn't have to buy a gi. They give everybody belts. It was just like 100% free for all the kids. And they would take anybody, adults or kids. They were just like, if you want to learn karate, come in. And there were there were a couple of times where like some hood guys would come in and be like, what's this all about? And we'd be like, come on in, you know? And he'd be like, oh man, I'm no dude who know karate. And then they'd be like, oh, we take all you out. And the senseis would be like, come into the circle, right? And if it ended up in this kind of like, well, we're going to have to show you what karate is all about. The first thing before any kind of kumite those guys would have to bow and you saw them change. It's, it was incredible. Like as soon as they were just like, all right, let's go. And they would be like, no, bow first. We're not doing anything until you bow first. And they were just like, what, what bow? As soon, it was like something chemically in their body just shifted. As soon as they bowed, they changed. They changed. And it stopped being a fight and it started becoming a lesson. And most of the time, the guys who would do that, they would sign up. That's a great story. What about um, 52 Blocks? Yeah, that... the 52. No, it's funny. The funny thing about 52 Blocks, for those who don't know, and people, anyone could just Google it and try a Wikipedia page about it. But I remember before I knew about, like, the whole, like, you know, jail origins. And I, yeah. I there were just kids who would, like, do that in my neighborhood when they would fight each other. Yeah. And even like even, like, guys who would, like, not, you know, guys who I knew from the street who would not really want to like fight me, but they want to like slap box or whatever. And they would do that. I'm like, I didn't even know it. I was like, this is an inch. I guess this is an interesting era of like fighting in Brooklyn and stuff. But yeah. what was your exposure to that? If any, I saw 52 blocks when I was very young. Um, and, and it was from the streets. And the thing that got me so interested in 52 blocks, like, so for those who don't know, 52 Blocks is a very New York martial art that was invented in prisons, right? It was invented in the prisons and martial arts, and then it came out onto the street. But as a martial art, it's really legit. Like, they have names, they have moves, they have, you know, styles, you know what I'm saying? The, 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 big, the big move that everybody in 52 Blocks knows is called the skull and bones or the skull and crossbones, right? And it's like a block. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the skull and crossbones, right? It has a lot of like, it, it looks a lot like Wing Chun, the hands, you know? But I remember seeing it on the street from guys like slap boxing. And they would slap box. And if it got serious, you would see the 52 come yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Right? And everybody would say, oh, he knows 52. Oh, he got the 52, you know? And I was like, oh, let me, I wanted to like really get into this 52. To be honest, I'm surprised it's not more popular. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, like, think, I think there's a couple, I think there's a couple, there's a couple YouTube videos of guys like in like, in like basketball courts, outdoor yeah. basketball courts in, in New York showing yeah. it or having yeah. private classes. 
Um, it's interesting because when we were kids, like, well, let me start by saying like my my high school, we didn't have a wrestling team. Like, so I didn't really, I mean, I knew what wrestling was because me and my, I'm not, I don't even, I don't even mean pro wrestling. We didn't care about pro wrestling, but me and my friends would get in the floor and put each other in headlocks and we didn't really know what we were doing, but we'd like wrestle around when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but any fight I ever saw on the street was boxing. I never saw, yeah. I never really saw people kick. I saw some people kick once in a while. I never saw anyone like grab anyone. I never saw anyone on the floor. Like I just saw guys boxing. Like that's all I ever saw. Yeah. So boxing was, was it on the street where I yeah. was from. So when I, or, you know, or karate or boxing, or but, you know, striking. Yeah. And then when I kind of like discovered other parts of the U.S. or talking to people who grew up like in California, like, oh, guys are fighting, they get in the floor and start rolling on the grass. And I'm like, oh, that's, I'm not familiar with that kind of fighting. So yeah. um, I really didn't know what grappling was, except me and my friends just wrestling with each other. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, like the Midwest and other places, like the wrestling programs are big and like, but of course, New York, at least New York then was just, it was all about boxing. So it was all hands. Like everybody wanted hands. Yeah. Even in the martial art community, it was about hands. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we talk about VR niece all the time, yeah. but Master V was all about, you know, hand skills. Hand well, skills. Interesting about Professor V, Master V, who, you know, taught, um, of course, David James, who, you know, we yeah. discussed and he's awesome. And and uh, Mo, he was Moses, pa- Moses, Moses Powell's pa- primary yes. teacher. Um yeah. His Master content. V needs his own documentary. He brought so many people into the martial arts and made so many people great. Like Master V is legendary. I can't, I could not agree more. And it's interesting. I've seen interviews with him and his, his contention was this. He said that he studied, I'm going to leave a few out, I'm sure, but he studied Aikido, Judo, Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, of Japanese, Japanese. Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. Um, I think Filipino stick and knife fighting. Yeah. And his contention was not not that he said that you shouldn't be great at something if someone wants to get a black, but his contention was like he would study like Aikido for two years and karate for two years and jujitsu for two years. And like he didn't want to necessarily like do it for 10 years and get a black belt and master it. He just wanted to get what he needed and he kind of put it all together. And that became, I guess it was called like Vijitsu Te or something like that. Yeah. Um, but he produced some real legends. Like, I mean, David James, amazing teacher, Moses Powell, and and many others, like Little John or all these guys. Like, Little John, I guess yeah. he was from Moses Powell, but or not yeah. sure how that all went down. But, um, you know, it's funny, like, when I watch those guys, remember that the street is much different than the UFC. UFC is like, are you ready? Are yeah. you ready? You ready? Right. So, yeah. you know, the street is a whole different thing in a, in a fight or a self-defense or whatever you want to call it situation. And I feel like, yeah, maybe if you took like a, uh, someone from that lineage, like Moses Powell, David James, maybe against like a really, really good jujitsu guy in the UFC, maybe the guy's just going to clinch the jujitsu guy's going to clinch him and take him to the ground and he'll overcome him. But I feel like in the street vibe and scenario, I'm not saying who would win or anything, but those guys are well equipped. Way different. Yeah, it's way. It, Ron Van Cleef fought Hoist Gracie. I saw that. Yep. And he was, he was fifty-three years old. I he think. was fifty-three yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah. I had to give Ron Van Cleef credit for like yes. stepping into the ring totally. with Gracie. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think people really understood how legendary Ron Van Cleef was. You know, he yeah. was like he was the black dragon. There's some videos, by the way. There's some videos that you can on YouTube somewhere that shows him in like nineteen. 
70 something in like a real no holes barred thing. And he like wins, like he gets, gets the guy down. And he like soccer kicks him in the head and KOs him. It's like a real like yeah. UFC with less rules. So he did yeah. something. Ron Van Cleef was is legit. Like he's legit. But I watched him in UFC and I watched Hoist just like take him down and hold him down to side control. And it was just a whole nother world with rules. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, just a different thing. But those guys are survivors for a reason. You know, Little John, Moses Powell, you know, David James, like those guys really tested their martial arts like in real life situations and i don't even think you can do the shit that they did anymore to test their martial arts because you'll be in jail for 25 to life right, right. but those guys like really tested their shit like one thing you know i i took i took probably i don't know 15 classes with david james about, yeah and one thing i really liked about it uh, among other things was, you know great in every way quite frankly but I feel like this is what it reminds me. It's like, you know, sometimes when people do knife defense and yeah. they, when they take the knife, they just give the knife back. And then God forbid they get attacked in the street and they disarm them. Sometimes they're in the habit of giving it back and they do. So, you know, so, so what happens is, and of course, me and you, we love Brazilian jiu-jitsu, obviously. Yeah. I'm just saying like, when you go to jiu-jitsu, which is fine, it's very friendly, you slap hands and whatever. Yeah. But man, when I went to David James' class, he mentally prepares you for the yes. street because when you have your uke or your partner, like he's just like, you're grabbing this guy by the throat and you're threatening him verbally. Like part of the class is you are playing the role of yes. someone who just got out of Rikers. He doesn't care about himself. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care if he goes back to jail. And then like David James would kind of like physically right. and mentally put you in this mindset. And then you're just being like attacked like that and you're doing what you're doing. So it's like, uh, you know, let's hope it never happens. But if that happens in the street, you're so familiar with this. We're like, don't get me wrong. Jiu-Jitsu is incredibly, I mean, I do, you know, we both train in it. I love it, but it's such a friendly environment. You have to kind of like snap your mind for a second. Like, Oh, yeah. this is real, you know, but with David yeah. James, he can, it's like a soldier. Like when you go to basic training, yes. they're, they're, they have the sergeants like screaming in your face or whatever, because they're trying to like, like condition you for like chaos so david james like his classes are so freaking chaotic that like you're just like kind of calm under fire so i i like that I, that's, I that's the difference like that's the difference as there's a there's a difference between like martial art class and like self-defense there's a huge difference. And the difference is all mental. You have to be ready. I remember one time, you know, when I first moved to LA, I started taking Tybo, right? Because Billy Blank's gym was like right around the corner from my place. And I was bored. And I was just like, and Tybo was all the rage. So I started taking Tybo. And Tybo was a great workout. And people who don't know Billy Blank's, Billy Blank's is a legit martial artist. He was, he was, right? yeah. He was like, you know, kickboxer, competed in the ring. And athletically phenomenal he's like a gifted gifted athlete gifted right taibo is not a martial art it's a workout it's a workout right and it's a really good workout i was listening to some people in taibo and they were like oh man i love this class i can really handle myself on the street and i was like please don't don't <laughs> 
don't think that you can do Tybo. And I'm like, look, no disrespect. Tybo is a great workout. It's a lot of fun. It's not fighting. Don't think it's fighting. Please, please don't. And, you know, to Billy Blanks' credit, he's like, it's not fighting. It's a workout. But, like, people who've never, ever taken, like, martial arts for real before, they would do Tybo and be like, I feel like I can handle myself. I'm like, you can't. Like, first of all, you can't. And second, you know, it's interesting. Also, it's a vibe. And you you probably forgot this, but I'm going to tell, tell a story that which involves you. You probably forgot. It. It's a cool story. Me and you were in LA together in like 2004 mm-hmm. and we were, we were, we were getting some food to go. And there was a guy in the place like acting kind of crazy and like scaring everybody, not me and you, but he was scaring like the employees. And, and then he was kind of just like, I, I don't know what was wrong with him, but he was like, and then he kind of looked at you and you had a look on your face like, no. And then he just <laughs> kind of like, he understood like, no, um, I don't know if you remember that, but I don't. I don't remember yeah, yeah. that. That's I, funny. I'll, I'll tell you the details after when we're <laughs> off the air. But um, yeah, yeah. So that uh, that so it was just it was a vibe. I'm like he just saw like it. It wasn't that he looked at you. He looked at you, and your vibe was like no. And yeah, he was he, like he, okay, he I'll move it. on. I'll move yeah, on. Yeah, he felt it. Yeah, he yeah, felt yeah. it. He was just like not this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's and one of the reasons why I've never been mugged before or I've never been like attacked on the street before is because of that vibe. Like I was trained that way as a kid. Right. So when I step out of the house and when I have the armor on the self-defense armor on, I don't care what kind of mental state you're in. You look at me and you're like, maybe not that guy. Yeah. yeah. And that's because of training. Like I've trained that way. Totally. Switching gears a little bit, you know, cause we could be, we could be here all night. Um, cause we have so many cool topics to discuss. I'm trying to just pare it down to the awesome ones. Um, switching gears when you got the job to do the motion capture and voice and everything else for Jar Jar Binks in yeah. star Wars. Um, of course that was obviously a thrill and le- has led to, and will continue to lead to so many amazing things just, and, and by the way, this next subject I'm going to ask you about, I'm kind of ignorant about it actually. So I actually don't know too much about it. I just know a little bit about it. Like, like a sliver but what was the what was the backlash to you as an actor like what was the problem like like for example Robert De Niro played a psychopath in Cape Fear yes now when he finished playing the role people were like Robert De Niro he's the best oh my god it was so he's so scared what a great actor if I meet him I want to just touch his shoulder or shake his hand no one's like no one was like man Robert De Niro maybe he has psychopathic tendencies what's wrong with like no one said that Right. So why a guy like Ahmed Best, who's doing a great job, like doing his job that George Lucas, et cetera, tells him to do, walk like this, talk like this, and then you just do it. What what could possibly that lead to um, in in regards to any beef with you? I don't quite even get that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple of reasons. One, I'm the easiest target. You know, George Lucas is damn near untouchable, right? Like, he's really rich. He's very well protected. You can't really destroy him, right? You can't really ruin him. Regardless of what you felt about the movies, you can't really do anything to him. I was not. You know, Star Wars was my first movie. I was incredibly accessible. And a couple of things were happening at that time in 1999. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of things were changing, like the 20th century was ending and the 21st century was beginning. And so there was a lot of fear in the air and there was a lot of change in the air. And as things were changing, they were changing quite rapidly in a way that people didn't feel very secure. And the idea behind um, what everybody thought Jar Jar was going to be was they believed that this technology was going to replace people. And there's this idea that, you know, and, and it, it exists to this day when we talk about automation. It exists to this day when we talk about like oil companies, right? When we like, we're talking about electric vehicles and, and, and climate change, right? People in coal, people in oil, people in energy are just like, you're coming after me. I have to do something in order to stop you. I have to stop this technology from moving forward or else I'm done. I'm gone. It was the exact same way in entertainment, right? So the idea was, these computer-generated imaged characters were going to take the place of actors and actors were going to have no place whatsoever in entertainment and the entire industry is going to change. And I was the first person to do that type of work. So because I wasn't well-known, because I was an African-American actor, and it's, and it's very easy to target African-American actors, especially when you have comedic characters and comedically ambiguous characters because I was, wasn't well-known and I was accessible, it was just this, you know, I, I became a lightning rod for the ire of all of these folks. Also, the Star Wars fandom is um, so devout to their movies, right? And, and this is what's different now. Like now the kids that grew up on the movies that I was in, the prequels are now in their 30s. Right. And so the prequels are their Star Wars movies. And now they hate the sequels. They hate the new ones that are coming. Right. All the fans are just so pretty much um, devoted and dedicated to their ideas of what Star Wars should be, that any change in that is going to be detrimental to their idea of what it should be. So that happened. Unfortunately, it was like guys our age. You know, it was guys that grew up on the original ones like we did, right? And they were fans like us. So when, you know, Jar Jar came out and Jar Jar was very obviously slapstick comedic for kids, right? They were offended. They were just like, why would you make a kid's movie when we've been waiting 20 years? But just for pausing for a second. Let's just say in the midst of that storm, so to speak, someone had any, like you said, you're accessible. So someone asked you a question or said something to you, right? Like, like, did it, did you ever answer with, I am an actor doing a role for a script? Constantly. If you have, if you have any beef with anything about anything, you might want to take it up with, the writers, the directors, the etc. Like, why would you even ask? Like, I don't even have an answer for you. Like, in other words, like, there's a really good, there's a really good uh, spiritual teacher who once said, I'm just quoting him. Someone asked him a question. It was, you know, and he said, you know, and this is this is the guy who answered a lot of questions. But one particular person asked him a question. He goes, "That question is not going to get answered. It can just, it's just going to be shown as false. Like, it's just a false question. I'm going to, I'm not even going to answer it." So that's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking. It's like, what, like what, you know, it's almost like saying to them, what would you possibly want me to say to you? Like, you should be asking yeah. someone else this. Totally. And there was nothing I could say. And it, there, it, it came out at a time where 
the internet as communication was really catching on, right? And it was the very beginning of cyberbullying, right? And no one had heard or known about cyberbullying before. Like I was the first kind of real case for cyberbullying. And so now this new way of eliciting outrage and, and, and benefiting financially off of outrage was available and everyone took advantage of it, right? Now, the entire currency of the internet is outrage. Everyone wants to be outraged at all times. So anytime you're looking at social media, it's like, how can I fucking piss you off as much as I can so you can be outraged in a way so you can respond to it and it could be everywhere, right? So 99 was the beginning of all of that. And it, it, it as far as the cyberbullying as a, as a method goes, it was in, intensely successful. And I think industry, especially media industries, saw it and was like, we got something and, and perpetuated it. Unfortunately, like I was a 26-year-old kid and I was on the other end of it. And I didn't, I wasn't trained on how to handle that type of not only attention and media backlash, but also that the, the psychological strain on me from what is now known as cyberbullying. I mean, this is a whole um, field in psychology now, right? This field didn't exist. And it, it was really started because of of star wars and, and jar jar Binks. you know it's interesting when you said about like you were a 26 year old kid you were not trained in any way to you know it's funny i was talking to bj penn once you know who yeah. i've been good friends with forever yeah and whatever we were talking about and i was like bj like you just happen to be an incredibly talented guy like no one trains you to be world famous like you don't know how to be how, how do you know how to be world famous you know yeah. so anyway and then it, of course it was in context in the conversation but well anyway i'm i'm glad that era or that not era but i'm glad that whole experience is done and you learn from it and grew from it and are stronger for it and i'm glad that's done um, but I just want to commend you for, you know, being freaking Jar Jar Banks and freaking that's amazing. You, know, you should be super proud of yourself. You know, to um, be honest, to be honest, the thing that changed it all was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. In what, what, what was the connection? Well, you know, I had, you know, after Revenge of the Sith, I was just really in a place where I just didn't want to do anything, Right. And so I fired everybody. I fired my agents, fired my managers, fired everybody. And I was going to move back to New York. Um, but I wanted to put on a gi again. I wanted to be that kid in the basement of Brownsville and just focus on this one thing. And that's when I found John Machado, you know, and putting, there was something about putting on a gi and everybody who's ever worn a gi and tied a belt knows this, right? There's something about putting on a gi and tying a belt that is therapeutic. You know, it really, it really is a healing in some way. And there's an honesty about martial arts where it's just like, it's you versus yourself. Yeah. There's another guy, right. And, and you're, 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 there's an opponent, you know, there's somebody else, but you're really battling yourself, whether it is your anxiety or your, or your muscles or your, you know, or your fear, like all of these things have to culminate in order for you to assemble techniques in order for you to, to move forward. Right. And so I did jujitsu 
three times a day, every single day. That's all I did. And that's what kind of brought me back into wanting that, wanting to perform again. That's, that's actually a great story and a great testimonial for martial arts and specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and of course, we met at that academy, which is awesome. Yes. Um, right. Before we kind of wrap up, I just want to just go to like a random topic. It's got nothing. To, well, I guess it does have something to do with some stuff we discussed. But just just briefly, I just kind of thought it would be fun for us to chat about MMA for a moment. Nothing, yeah. nothing major. But totally. but like, uh, let's let me just I'm just going to ask you like random questions. Let's random questions. So first question. Why do you think John Jones is so good? Like, in other words, he is so good. That guy is so oh. effing good. I mean, he's just like freaking like he puts to sleep Mashida. He 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 ends Shogun Hua with a liver punch. I mean, this guy just like folds people. But there's a lot of good guys out there who are good wrestlers, who are good boxers, who are good kickboxers, who are good at jujitsu, who are athletic, who are strong, who have good stamina. Why is this guy just like a once in a generation just like superstar? What is it? Yeah, he's uh, he's a one. He's like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, or he's just like he's special, and and his sport just happens to be MMA. He is, you know, Bruce Lee created a martial art called Jeet Kune Do, art of intercepting fist, right, and. When I was a kid, I read that book back to front. I can't tell you how many times I read that book. That book has been such a, a formative thing in my life. And not just the philosophies of it, but the moves. Like he, Bruce Lee has like pictures and stuff like that, right? And he always talks about this style of the unknown, right? And and once this style, and that's kind of what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in Game of Death. He was the style of the unknown. That's John Jones. John Jones is Bruce Lee's style of the unknown. He's the guy that Bruce Lee created Jeet Kune Do for because not only is he athletically gifted, not only is he a good wrestler, good striker, but his creativity in the ring is unmatched. You know, on that note, that 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 kind of unknown factor in creativity, I remember when he fought Alex Gustafson, I don't know yes. if it was, if it was I remember my friend called me before and go, who do you think is going to win? He's like, Gustafson's really good. He's a really good wrestler and he's really good. I said, this is what I said. I go, what's going to happen is it's going to be actually fairly competitive. And at some point, John's going to start landing those spinning elbows. And that hurts so freaking much and yeah. dazes you so much. He's going to slowly overtake him and win. That's exactly what happened. Yep. That's exactly what happened. John Jones is an artist in the MMA ring. His creativity, his intellect, his 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 MMA genius is on another level. And regardless of whether you like him or not, you have to accept the fact that he is that guy. He is the Michael Jordan. He is the LeBron James of MMA. He is a once-in-a-lifetime athlete. And, you know, John Jones' biggest opponent is himself. Like, he's <laughs> the only person that can beat John Jones is John Jones. Like no one else could beat, no one else has beaten John Jones worse than John Jones has beaten himself. Yeah, hopefully he'll work that out. And then one last athlete, I'm just thinking of like some random, like, you know, good ones that uh, are worth discussing. What about GSP? GSP, obviously a superstar, great guy, et cetera, et cetera. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know him. I don't know if he's a great guy, but, you know, great superstar, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he has good stand up but not the greatest. It's good. It is, it's a solid, very good, actually. I, I don't think he has 
excellent stand-up, but he has very good stand-up, solid. Um, he has good jujitsu, but not the greatest. He has great good jujitsu, but not the greatest. He really never was a wrestler, but he actually is a great wrestler. Great, 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 spectacular wrestler. I mean, he could he went up he went up against the prime uh what's that guy's name? It'll come to me. Really good wrestler. But anyway, he, he's got up against he's got up against wrestlers who are superstar wrestlers, and he takes them down. Yeah. So, anyway, the point and, and he has great uh, stamina and great mindset. But why do you think he's considered by many, not all, but many consider him the best pound for pound ever? I, I don't know if he is or not. But um, what was so good about him besides GSP? You know, my the the two things that GSP has over everybody in the UFC, I think, personally, his work ethic, no one's going to outwork GSP, either in training or in the ring. He will outwork you. And his will, when he wants to win, he wins. When his will isn't there, he doesn't win. Like, the 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 couple of times he lost, and he lost to lesser guys, you could tell he didn't want to be in the ring, right? His will makes him better than everybody else and he will outwork you he'll outwork anybody in the ring he'll outwork you in a workout right i remember i was talking to kenny florian great you know jujitsu guy uh, was like an amazing he was he was in uh one of the ufc game shows i can't remember which one really great guy really good friend of mine and i was talking to kenny florian he trained with gsp and he'd be like they would train hard like hard jujitsu hard workouts blah, blah, blah right Hard weightlifting. And Kenny would be like, um, yeah, I'm ready to go. And GSP was like, hey, you want to do gymnastics? You want to do some gymnastics? And he would just go right into gymnastics. Like he was a machine. He wouldn't stop. Right? GSP has that will and he has that work ethic. He will outwork anybody in the ring. And by I the way, I, I, great. excellent. And by the way, when I said I can't remember the, I remember it was Josh Koscheck. Yes. Prime Josh Koscheck. Yes. He was a great wrestler. GSP yeah. was taking him out. Now, yeah. And lastly, on Anderson Silva, quick question. Yeah. You know, we could go spectacular fighter. I mean, you know, really one of one of the things that was amazing. I mean, of course, you know, he when he triangled Sun in at the end, but I thought when he just his clinch against Rich Franklin twice was good because Rich Franklin's a wrestler. But I, as a Kyokushin guy, our clinches are good. When it comes yeah. to clinches, it's tie boxing and Kyokushin are the king of the clinch. Agreed. And I was always Agreed. good at the clinch. So yes. I could respect and see everything that's happening with there. And he's just He's just clinching him and just just toying with him like a like a baby. So that was impressive. Here's my question. Here's the Anderson Silva question. Not about how great he was. We all agree with that. When he lost to Weidman, I guess the first yeah. time. Yeah. Do you think that was a he was just toying with him and he shouldn't have toyed with him and he that was the wrong guy to toy with? Or do you think he the vibe somehow he thought like, mate, I don't know if I can beat this guy, so I'm gonna play around a lot like. How do you think that went down where he got killed like yeah, that? I, I don't I don't think it was um I don't think he was worried about Weidman. I don't think he was like, yeah, this guy might beat me. I think when he, when Anderson fought Damian Maya in Abu Dhabi, remember that fight? Thought, where he yeah, was just yeah, kind of yeah. like running around the yeah, ring yeah, and yeah, he yeah. wouldn't engage with Damian Maya. Yeah, yeah. I think he was like, Damian Maya could beat me. If Damian Maya puts me on the ground, I'm done. Right. Cause that was prime Damian Maya. Damian Maya was world champ jujitsu. Like Damian Maya was in in really good shape so anderson like ran around the ring in abu dhabi so i don't think he was worried about weidman i don't think anderson's heart was in the ufc anymore 
I think he was just like, whatever. If I knock this guy out, cool. If he knocks me out, cool. I just don't think he had the heart for the sport anymore. And it was his, he was, I think Anderson spent like a couple of years too long in the UFC, right? I think he was really done. Emotionally, he was done. Um, and I don't, I feel like he didn't have anything left to prove, so the Weidman fight, I think he was just playing around because he was just like, I could do this. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I could either do this or not do this, whatever. And then got clipped and he got knocked out, you yeah. know? Cool. All right, well, listen, Ahmed, that was, we covered a lot of stuff, man. And I really appreciate you coming on, as you know. And I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this and benefit from it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, my brother. Anytime. You know I'm there anytime.